0: Welcome to What Does Eugenics Mean to Us?, a podcast from the UCL Sarah Parker Raymond Centre. I'm your host, Subhadra Das, and for the last 10 years, I've been researching the history and legacy of eugenics at UCL in the sciences and beyond. In this podcast, I've brought together some brilliant researchers for some fascinating and insightful conversations across the disciplinary divides. Together we are going to discuss, examine, critique and explode eugenic thinking. How are racism, ableism, sexism and class warfare embedded in our ways of thinking about and perceiving other people? What can we do to challenge and dismantle those ideas and structures? As a university and a community of researchers, what does eugenics mean to us? The places and spaces we inhabit profoundly affect our lives and how we live them in ways we need to think about more critically. At the launch of the project we are going to be talking about in today's episode, Kamala Patel spoke to how people have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic by saying, It is not who we are and what we eat that will kill us, but where we live and where we work. My guest today came together to write a curriculum to help students and researchers of the built environment be more mindful about the ways in which their discipline actively reinforces and reproduces racism and ableism. They all work at the Bartlett, UCL's Faculty of the Built Environment, and are Kamna Patel, Associate Professor at the Bartlett Development Planning Unit, Yasmina John, Associate Professor at the Bartlett School of Planning, and George Burridge, Senior Teaching and Learning Officer at the Bartlett Faculty Admissions Office. So the reason that I wanted to talk to you all about this is because as far as I'm aware, it's it's a unique example at UCL of, um, of people in a department getting together to try to address issues to do with social injustice. And I know that the project was officially launched in November 2020, which uh, was in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement that year, but I know that you all had, been, had got together and were thinking and working on this a good deal early, earlier than that. So what I want to know is what motivated you to put this curriculum together? Why did you think it was needed?
1: So the idea of this curriculum as a curriculum was an idea that evolved over a short space of time. Initially, what I had imagined was being able to provide a set of resources to colleagues, that engages with questions of race and makes a case for why, across the various disciplines that are within the faculty, why we should be engaging with race. What's the the scholarly reasons for an engagement, a critical engagement with race? The format of a curriculum came about on inspiration from other colleagues, uh, one of whom, and I call them a colleague even though they're at another university, Suzanne Hall and Huda Tayeb. And they both developed a curriculum on race, space and architecture. And it's it's a different curriculum to our curriculum, but it's still a curriculum. And that's what resonated with me. The fact that we do work in a university and we produce curricula all the time. We review others as external examiners and so on. So it became quite a natural thing to engage in a project of educating our colleagues, of bringing them on some kind of a learning journey through the medium of a curriculum.
0: Do do either of you two want to kind of add to that? When you heard this was happening, what were your reasons for wanting to come and join in?
2: I was invited to join on it and I thought it was a really exciting and interesting idea and I think one of the things very much for me um, working within planning is that it was something that I'd kind of looked at in my own work and was part of my own teaching but it always felt like a very small part of what students were getting that it was something that they maybe got a few hours here and there so I thought that when I was invited to be part of it, that it was such a a good idea about not only bringing together a kind of interesting set of resources and this specific curriculum, but also really emphasising how important the idea was of connecting race and space. So it's not just a kind of specialist interest, but it was something that was really fundamental to to what was going on in the faculty across all the disciplines.
0: And George, uh, was it similar issues with you in terms of wanting to be a part of this?
3: What really appealed to me was the means of educating. I, I've often felt in the past that you can have a very important message and you can talk to an audience and there's quite clearly global and social issues, but they're they're not addressed and people aren't engaged with in, in a way that they enjoy or find interesting. And I always thought that building a curriculum around interesting literature would reach people in a way that might be unconscious if you're reading a book and it's, it's engaging and it's interesting and you find it's a good story, after a while you develop an interest in it and you might go back and reassess it and you might find that there's there's a story about people from different backgrounds, people who might have immigrated to England and made it their home. And after a while, certainly for, for me, you know, being you know, a white middle class guy, is to find that there's a, a lack of acceptance for, for people who have migrated to this country and who have not actually had a sense, sense of involvement, but it is nonetheless their home. They brought their children. up think there. uh, there's a, there's a great sense of responsibility off the back of that, and you know certainly there's a lingering lingering feeling of guilt. But there's there's a need for for me personally to want to have an involvement and. The literature itself, I think, would would feed and have a ripple effect for for people, and they find it interesting and they take a the message home without having it imposed. on
0: them. Yeah, I think that's. I think there's something really valuable in that in terms of this is why we read. It broadens our horizons and it brings in kind of a wider view to things that we might not have thought about before. And I think what I'm what I'm getting from you is the idea that actually these are these are stories and these are subjects that aren't generally told was there a frustration that these were things that you knew from your research and from your experience but actually wasn't appearing anywhere else
3: i I think the books that i have read have brought it home in a charming way with good humor and they've been written in in a way that makes me want to continue to read the book and then read the next book and it it does it does reinforce what's clearly already evident i think i think there's there's, there's obviously extracts missing from history, which I, which I think is being currently addressed. You know, you know, quite clearly, you do not see images of it as you're, as you're educated at, you know, maybe GCSE level, but the, the amount of people from international countries you might have fought on behalf of, you know, Great Britain in the First or Second World War, but now you're, you're seeing actual images of black people you know, fighting on behalf of the mother country. I, I think that has stemmed from work in the last couple of years, and it's quite comforting to me, because, you know, once, once I've read it, it, it does bring home to me that I've had to wait until I'm in my late thirties to have found out about it. And now I actually feel a lot more at ease when I actually see, I'm listening sort of to the versions on TV at the moment, which quite clearly showing what West Indian contributions towards the Second World War was. And I think that will grow, and I think there will be other people who will look at that and, you know, rather than feel defensive about it, will actually
0: be but... Entirely. Does that accord with you two as well, Kamna and Yasmina?
1: I suppose that if we're talking about broadening the audience and accessibility, which is a, a language we always use in academia, right? We want to make our learning accessible in some way, either that's through relatable research outputs or it's through coming up with new techniques to engage different kinds of students or new students doing outreach work and so on. Within the context of this curriculum, what I think was incredibly important and remains really important is having something that translates across our disciplines. And so space became this really useful concept to enable us to do that. But those of us that worked on it, we all come from very different disciplinary backgrounds. Yasmin is a planner. We've got others who are architects. I come from development studies. So it's having this space, we curated an area, we curated a place for us to be able to have these discussions about what does that intersection between race and space look like for each of us. And that was drawing on our research and it's drawing on our ideas. We're also not just a group of academics, you know, George was involved in the project, George's professional services staff. And so having a wide group of people drawing on full range of their lived experience, the full range of their knowledge, academic knowledge as well, became quite pivotal to producing what we did. Because what we did is not just geared towards students, it's not a curriculum for students, it's a curriculum for our peers as well. And as academics, I think it's fair to reflect that we often work in silos, particularly when it comes to teaching our module or teaching on our program. And so this was a means of breaking through those silos, not just amongst each other as contributors, but with colleagues who perhaps need a little bit of help and a little bit of direction in seeing what is the relevance of this race and space to quantitative research that they do? What is the relevance of it to whatever area that they regard as niche, perhaps, and not relevant to race and space? And we're saying it is. Look, look at this one resource. It shows you that it is reads this language and it will tell you and explains quite clearly in everyday language that whatever niche area you think you're researching, there is a race and space element to it. And the, the fact that it goes unacknowledged is speaking about the absence and the erasure
0: of race. Yasmina, do you want to add anything to that?
2: Just to kind of continue from that about that that kind of dimension of, of research and it being seen as a niche area is really interesting and I was think I was thinking about it a lot recently so my PhD was on race and urban planning in Britain and the amount of conversations I had including with like very senior academics who were just really shocked by my topic and said that this has nothing to do with planning why are you even doing that PhD. And so, you know, that that was always very much the kind of message I was getting in the UK context. And so I think, you know, with the curriculum and so on, that's always been kind of my my interest is around race, but also the way it's always pushed back on, which I think is really interesting in the UK context, given its colonial history, the way that you could even start to talk about Britain, uh, not having any kind of engagement with race is, is obviously a very specific positioning. So Gaminda Bambra, the sociologist, her work in in terms of sociology and that connection to colonialism and race, I think has been really important in, in kind of trying to talk about how we uncover and retell those stories. But also, I think, in terms of the connection to research and teaching. So on one level, the importance of really bringing these resources together for people that might not have really thought about that but also in in terms of thinking about that one of the things about ucl that's so nice is that you do have such a diverse international group of students and actually connecting with those students are also thinking that these things are missing i think that's been really important and then just the, the final point was i think with the the variety of resources we've got as George was saying about the way that those stories are told, I think is really important. I often say to my students, if they want to understand kind of urban space and cities, then maybe like reading a planning, an academic planning article isn't necessarily the best way of doing that. So having that diversity of resources and different accounts and stories, I think is is really important for that whole kind of lived experience.
1: To add to Yasmina's point about our international students, that there's also, and I think it's important to acknowledge, there's also a subset of our students who don't think that race matters, who particularly when they come to the UK, maybe it's their first time, particularly if they're postgraduate students, they're only here for a year, and they encounter this discussion about race that's happening in a UK context that's quite inward-looking. And so part of the curriculum and the language that we use in it is to allow students to understand how they may be placed within the UK context, even if it has no legitimacy to them in their home country context. And I kind of doubt that. Actually, I think it's relevant in every context, even if the language might change to caste, for example, instead. But allowing them to see how they're placed and what is the history and the structure that occurs to them. It happens to them without their consent. And so that they can navigate some of those politics and the curriculum points them in the direction of How that situation came about and how they might be able to resist it, not to deny it, but to form their own anti-racist resistance in solidarity with UK based students or any other students who are more familiar with race politics.
0: Yeah, so it's, a, it's about making people familiar with the discourse. First of all, acknowledging that there's a discourse there and then being able to see where they fit into it themselves. In the work you cite, for example, Brooke Neely and Michelle Samara, where they say that all racialized social processes are also spatialized. Could you share maybe a couple of examples about the ways in which the built environment contributes to social inequality? Can we help people to visualise exactly how that works? Because I think we've been talking metaphorically kind of all the way through, but what are the what are sort of the physical ways in which the space can impinge on us as people?
1: There are so many examples, it's hard to know where to begin. <laughs> the most obvious and the most recent, of course, would be the Grenfell Tower disaster. It's pertinent, I think, to raise that because... It's so close to UCL, geographically, from where we are. Grenfell's down the road. You you could walk there. It's a very horrible walk down a very busy road, but you could walk there. And the situation that led to a tower like Grenfell being built in the first place, and then, of course, the type of cladding that was put on, the inquiry, the initial advice to stay put, all of that has racialized elements to it. The aftermath, I remember with Theresa May awkwardly standing amongst survivors, not quite knowing what she should do, how she should behave. All of that speaks to ways in which these are lives unknown to her and folks in position of power like hers. And this built environment element of it is quite physical and it's quite literal in that it's a a big scab in the middle of London it's still there as a reminder of how racialized processes play out in creating buildings like these and play out in the demise and the destruction of buildings like these as well. And we're still living through the aftermath, right? We still talk about justice for Grenfell every year, particularly every year on anniversary of the fire and in between as the inquiries unfold. (laughs)
0: Moving on to the details of the curriculum itself, this is, brace yourself for the the thing that sounds like a really tedious interview question, but nonetheless people will be interested to hear. There are a really wide range of resources in the curriculum across highbrow and lowbrow culture, and I phrased that very particularly because it's a very eugenic way of describing culture, and ever since I've really kind of reflected on Highbrow and low brow i e highbrow people are well born and they've got big foreheads and big brains is the is the is the implication there. so I wanted to use that phrase very particularly with a view to probably never using it again. But what I what I'm what I'm interested to know is what are your favorites in the curriculum and why do those piece, pieces speak to you particularly? It could be a piece that you really wanted to include and you know you were going to fight to have it included or it might be something that someone brought in that you'd never encountered before.
2: Just to start off, I I don't think we ever had a fight Good over what we wanted to include or not and it's just such A really nice collection of stuff that we would never individually have had. And I think that that strength of the the different people, the different disciplines and the different locations we all, all worked in, I think really comes through. I think for me, two things that I like, or particularly within that, is the Andrew Levy book small island which I picked up off my bookshelf this morning just because and I've been reading actually a lot more literature recently that looks at that post-war immigration experience I've been thinking about my parents a lot I think I mentioned to you that my my father passed away recently and I I think part of the reason for that is that just that he was a post-war immigrant from that, that African subcontinent actually but actually those stories about how of people's arrival in the UK, into London and other places. And I think, you know, Andrea Levy's book is like a really important contribution to that story, but also about like the everyday experiences of people. And I think often in a lot of the narrative about post-war migration, those kinds of individual experiences are really left out. Even just things like that for my parents, when they came to the UK, it was exciting. And that's never really talked about in the literature, that it was an adventure. And it's something I, I can never really imagine ever doing so my dad came to the UK with like all he had was some money and an address in a pocket in his pocket of someone else Mauritius in Lewisham to go and see to help get settled so that's why I, I like these stories I think they're, they're really powerful and, and obviously Andrea Levy was a sort of amazing writer and the other thing I was going to say was um the Kerry James Marshall as the artist and I think you know his work is very powerful about the kind of recentering of, of black people, the American artists, in art and in those narratives. And I think sort of realise that as you, you're growing up, that kind of absence of people of colour within many representations of life. And I think, you know, that that's really... It's, it's very powerful, but you also hope that for, like, a younger generation of people, seeing that kind of change and shift and the acknowledgement... Of kind of other perspectives within art and literature, I think is really really important, and and gives like a profound connection not just to kind of culture but also to that sense of belonging. I think I really like sense of belonging as well.
1: So I've got a favourite section, if that's okay, and then one piece within that section. It's the bit on speculative futures, and that's my favourite part of the curriculum because it's the part that provoked me personally to think a lot more deeper than I have about the ways in which race and space are related to each other and what does that mean for scholarship? What does that mean for built environments of the future in in physical, real ways, as well as the more metaphorical and symbolic ways that we often speak about or I often speak about? And it brought home to me just the dearth of imagination that exists and how the legacy of a racist education has this effect of stymieing imagination of limiting our possibilities and that the role of us as educators ends up being to provoke reimagining and to direct folks to where this reimagining is occurring and so the piece within speculative futures that i really like is black panther the film i mean it's a great film you know everyone likes their superheroes and so on but it's the imaginations of africa and i watched that particularly attentive to those representations because my own research looks at representations of africa from a development studies perspective where it's often you know deprived looking hungry looking black and brown bodies in constant states of deprivation waiting to be saved and here was something that paid no attention to that whatsoever there is no imaginative genealogy that exists between those images of wakanda and the images we see in development studies, in development literature, in fundraising campaigns, and so on. And so, this was a complete break with what exists in predominantly UK based, northern based imaginations of what is Africa. And I thought it was marvellous for it incredibly creative, beautiful buildings. Like the architecture of the buildings in that film are just stunning. And it just shows what is possible. And we have to have we have to be able to imagine something, I think, in order to be able to move towards it.
0: Very well said and excellent choice as well. As a museum person, the scene at the beginning of the film, which is Michael B. Jordan standing in what is obviously the British Museum, like every single museum conference I've been to since that film came out, that scene has been cited one way or the other. So, yeah, it's influences. It's influence is enormous. Right then, George, your turn. What's your
3: favourite? I don't mind saying it would probably have been Small Island by Andrea Levy. Again, it's it's educated to me the concept of the mother country, which is very very bold. I think for for people probably born in far reaching parts of the old empire, is that there was enormous draw for people to go home in many in many respects. That I've, I've come to realise is is common in a lot of stories that most people won't be conscious of. It's common in James Bond. It's it's an enormous, the, the idea for an, an orphan child who isn't actually of English origin at all, to have that aspiration, to have someone or something to return to. So so that, that hit home for me. And it's also some humour. But given that that's already been chosen, I will myself go for British-born Chinese which was a very short film, which uh, I, was, I was introduced to by accident. And I took an interest in it because a friend of mine, he married a Chinese lady and he's got a half-English, half-Chinese child. And it, it was a little sad to see the film, even though the message, of course, is quite important, because the parents of the Chinese kids born in Manchester are very clear that identity is going to be very important for their kids as they grow up and they've got to cling on to their Chinese heritage because they don't really trust they'll ever be accepted and born an in English identity.
0: This is it's just such a brilliant project, and there is so much inspiration for other people, other departments. You've, you've created something, I think, that other people can use. You know, this is, as you say, not so something for students, it's for, it's for your colleagues and for, for our peers at the university. The question is, what advice would you give other academic departments at UCL and beyond for drawing up their own version of this curriculum? Other, and so other than saying, use this one that you've already done. If I think about
1: what worked best with this curriculum, and it would be some, of, some core principles, I think, that others might want to emulate in that. It's having the central concept of space that meant something to everyone across our faculty. And that really is the primary audience. It's staff and students within our faculty, and then it's got broader reach. So finding that concept that has currency and that gives the project a relevance to all those naysayers who will say, "Mm, doesn't relate to my area, doesn't relate to what I'm interested in. This is completely irrelevant. There has to be some ability to be able to push back against that. And so whatever that one or two, maybe three even concepts that there are and those relationships to space, uh, to race, sorry, is what other teams might need to search for. The other answer, and and I'm saying this very much with my EDI hat on, it can't stand alone because otherwise this becomes a one-off niche, nice, cute little project that a handful of academics did and then it's forgotten about. So if we're raising consciousness, and for me this has always been about raising race consciousness across our faculty, then what does one do with that consciousness? How is that directed? How does that filter through into other projects, into other initiatives that we are also coordinating and leading on? So for me this relates to the Bartlett Promise and the scholarship programs that we're running from undergraduate, postgraduate taught and postgraduate research students. It's a way of signaling and putting in place content for those diverse scholars for those scholars who are underrepresented within our system who are coming into that system to understand that we are taking race seriously and we've given our colleagues the tools to be able to do so new recruitment initiatives on race and spatial justice hang on things like the race and space curriculum because we are signaling outwards that we are taking this seriously And that means not just looking at curriculum content, which is a critique that I would make and I'm sure others would make as well about decolonisation initiatives, that they sit only within the curriculum and rarely look at who is teaching that curriculum as well. And our work here on the race and space curriculum becomes a foundation, if you want to use the word foundation, for recruitment initiatives for staff and students. There's a whole movement, there's a whole push, and this is an important
0: cog in that. George, Yasmina, is there anything else you wanted to add to that?
2: The the thing about the curriculum was about from those discussions about having a very clear pathway. And I have to say, the, the speculative futures part was the thing, the part I found the hardest to engage with, but I think is really, was one of the really important, it was very important to think about sort of going from like how can we understand it based on what we already know to having that pathway through and, you know, the, then the call for action. So I think. Having a, a kind of trajectory, I think, is really important. That it's, it's not just about the critique, although that's a very important fundamental part of it, but actually thinking about how does that make a call for action for the discipline to change and for us to think about how we teach differently and how we engage with each other as well.
3: Well, my thoughts are in terms of expanding this curriculum and also for anyone that might be hesitant about adopting it. Is it really if you present it to your student body within any department, any UCL or almost any university, all of a sudden this is going to get a lot of traction. It's going to be picked up by the students who I always say are so much smarter than people give them credit for. And very, very quickly, they'll turn around and say, Well, we're actually familiar with a lot of literature. And they'll start throwing a lot back. They'll start growing the curriculum for everyone. I mean, there's a fantastic video I a series of students who were interviewed at UCL and so I think in another couple of colleges. For me, just to see these students, some of them were were quite irate about the way that they've been treated. And for them to actually say, yes, we're already very, very familiar with a series of these different authors. And yes, we can't can't believe you've never heard of Tony Morrison. If this curriculum is presented to UCL students, I think within a year it will have doubled.
0: Well, here's hoping. That sounds like a good thing. That sounds like a good place for it to go and a good thing for it to happen. Kamla Patel, Yasmina Bibi-John, George Burridge, thank you very much for joining me. You've been listening to What Does Eugenics Mean to Us, a podcast from the Sarah Parker Raymond Centre at UCL. Your host was me, Sibadra Das, and the music was by The Blue Dot Sessions. The producer was Keris Bradley.